First of all, we're going to read from Luke's Gospel, chapter 2, and then we're going to look at Philippians, uh, chapter 2. And we are going to look at what is either the greatest myth or the greatest story, the greatest news that has ever been told. Luke, chapter 2, reading from verse 1. In those days, Caesar Augustus issued a decree that a census should be taken of the entire Roman world. This was the first census that took place while Quirinius was governor of Syria, and everyone went to his own town to register. So Joseph also went up from the town of Nazareth in Galilee to Judea to Bethlehem, the town of David, because he belonged to the house and line of David. He went there to register with Mary, who was pledged to be married to him and was expecting a child. While they were there, the time came for the baby to be born, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in cloths and placed him in a manger, because there was no room for them in the inn. And there were shepherds living out in the fields nearby, keeping watch over their flocks at night. An angel of the Lord appeared to them, and the glory of the Lord shone around them, and they were terrified. But the angel said to them, Do not be afraid. I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. Today in the town of David, a Savior has been born to you. He is Christ the Lord. This will be a sign to you. You will find a baby wrapped in cloths and lying in a manger. Suddenly, a great company of the heavenly host appeared with the angel, praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace to men on whom his favor rests. When the angels had left them and gone into heaven... The shepherds said to one another, let's go to Bethlehem and see this thing that has happened, which the Lord has told us about. So they hurried off and found Mary and Joseph and the baby who was lying in the manger. When they had seen him, they spread the word concerning who had been told them, what had been told them about this child. And all who heard it were amazed at what the shepherds said to them. But Mary treasured up all these things and pondered them in her heart. The shepherds returned, glorifying and praising God for all the things they had heard and seen, which were just as they had been told. And then we'll read in Paul's letter to the Philippians. Um, if anyone has a pew Bible, if you could let me know what the number is, because mine doesn't correspond with that. Philippians chapter 2. It... What's that, Margaret? 1179. Page 1179, Philippians 2. I'm going to read from verse 5, where we're being told that if we belong to Christ, if we need any encouragement at all, then we are to consider others better than ourselves in humility and look to the interests of others. And in Paul, he's dealing with a particular situation in a church, and to give them an example, he gives them the greatest example of all, Christ. Philippians 2 verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Therefore God exalted him to the highest place and gave him the name that is above every name, that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow, in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, to the glory of God the Father. May God bless his word to us. 
Let's pray. Lord, as we look at your word, help us, each of us, to hear you speak to us. Provoke us, stimulate us, encourage us, change us, and forgive us, for we ask it in your name. Amen. I read this week that if you take Christ out of Christmas, all you've got left is M&S, which some of you probably thinks not a bad thing. <laughs> but um, actually, seriously, if you want to watch the sort of human race at its worst, go down to M&S on Wednesday this week and see if you survive. But uh, it is interesting when we think about Christmas, how people perceive things. And I'm just having a wee look to see what children are here. That's okay, you're all old enough. This is, this is not going to shock you. But there are people who think that those of us who are Christians here, we are on the level of children who believe in Santa Claus. Okay? I was traumatized the first time I discovered who Santa really was. I was seven years old and I caught my dad playing with my toy train set. Was, <laughs> and I realized then that he was really Santa and it was just, oh, it was just terrible. Now, I know there are some Christians who say you shouldn't tell your kids about Santa and stuff. And I'd say, come on, guys, lighten up a little bit. It's, there are things with children. Children, of course, it's fine. And I know Santa's an anagram of Satan and all the rest of it. And if you've got all the conspiracy theories you want, we can, we can work it out. But let the children be. But there are people who look, and they look at us, and they're saying, well, you're, it's nice you Christians have got that, but you're really on the same level as a five-year-old child lying in bed at night waiting for Santa to arrive. And there you are, you're talking about this story which is utterly ridiculous, which to them just doesn't make any sense. And yet in our culture, there are a lot of people who recognize you take this story out of it, and it's not just that without Christmas, without Christ in Christmas, you're just left with M&S or whatever. But without Christ in, I'm going to argue, without Christ in our culture and without Christ in our lives, our whole humanity is completely changed. And I want to show why the story of Christ coming into the world is just so significant and so important for us. Um, reading this book called Against Heresies by a man called Irenaeus, which was written about the year 180 AD. And it's great. It's really, really interesting because just to go back almost 2,000 years, very close to the time of Christ, and see someone quoting the Bible basically as we have it, and to see someone dealing with many of the same situations we have is really encouraging. But uh, I read this week, he says this, about Jesus coming into the world. For in no other way could we have learned the things of God unless our master, existing as the word, had become man. What is the point of what we call the incarnation, God becoming man? It is the only way that we can get to know God. It is the only way that we can have a relationship with God. All the arguments that people have about God, all the philosophical arguments and the scientific arguments, and many of you, you know, you know that I engage in all of these, but they still all come to nothing. You still end up without knowing unless you come to know Jesus. Now, as we look at this passage in Philippians 2, we're going to see what that means, but I'm going to apply it at two levels. First of all, those of us who are Christians... Surely our aim is to think like Jesus Christ, is to 
be like Jesus Christ is to follow Jesus Christ, to have the attitude of Jesus Christ. Verse 5, your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus. All of us are here with an attitude, and your attitude will vary, I think. My attitude varies according to a lot of different circumstances. But we are to seek to cultivate a Christian attitude, a Christ-like attitude. And we're going to see what that is. I think also for those of you who are not Christians or not sure or not there yet, um, I hope what I'm going to set before you is something that is so wonderfully attractive that even if it wasn't true, you'd want it to be true. In other words, that you will at least be stimulated enough to think about it and to inquire about it. Now, what happens in what is effectively a hymn from verses 5 to 11, an early church hymn, is that Paul, speaking to a group of people in a church in a place called Philippi, is trying to deal with an age-old problem that still exists, Christians who've fallen out with one another, and he wants them to consider Jesus Christ. And in this one song, he incorporates everything from Jesus coming from heaven to Jesus dying on the cross to Jesus returning again. And I think that uh, as we look at this, you'll see what the wonder of the incarnation is. First, very simply, verse 6, Jesus Christ is God, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. Now, these are really, really strong words. If somebody comes up to you and says that they are God, you, you think that there's something mentally wrong with them, there's something delusional about them. If human beings start behaving like God, then it creates enormous difficulties. Um, when you get politicians... Uh, dictators and so on, acting as though they're the only authority in the universe, you know that we're in trouble. And I have to admit that whatever one thinks about all the arguments about global warming and climate change and so on, one of the things that chilled me to the bone this week, apart from the weather, was uh, hearing our leaders saying things like, we have 10 days to save the world. And this notion that, um, in fact, I was so intrigued with this that I do this magazine called The Record, and uh, I asked the um, designer of it to come up, and he's come up with a design, which is like a, almost a cartoon of all the world's leaders, from Robert Mugabe uh, through the Chinese leader, and Obama, and Chavez, and Sarkozy, and Gordon Brown, of course. Um, I don't think he got Alex Salmond or Arnold Schwarzenegger in there, but he, he's, he's got a few of them. And it's just this idea of all thinking they're Superman, that they can save the world. And... No, they can't. I mean, they made an absolute mess of this week and will continue to make a mess. So when someone says they're God or acts like God or acts like they think they're God, it is an extremely dangerous position to be in. And when Jesus came into the world, and Jesus did, and you can go through the Gospels and you will see that Jesus did indicate that, did say that he was God, then it leaves us with a very, very awkward choice. C.S. Lewis's famous statement, which is still, I think, one of the, the best arguments I've heard, is that you cannot possibly patronize Jesus Christ and say that Jesus Christ is a good man 
but he thought he was God. And Lewis points out that if he thought he was God and he knew he wasn't God, he's not a good man because he was lying. If he thought he was God and he wasn't God, then he was on the same level as the man who says he's a poached egg because it's just lunacy. But if he said he was God and you're saying he's a good man and you're saying that he's not deluded, then the, con- the logical conclusion is that he is who he says he was. And that's what uh, Paul writes here to the Philippians. Jesus Christ was truly God before he became a human person. Hebrews chapter 1 puts it very s- simply. It just states that, God, that Jesus Christ is the ex- exact, the, the express representation of God's being. Now, what's important here is Jesus didn't, wasn't born as a human and then become God. He was God. He pre-existed. In the beginning, says John, was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Now, this is really difficult, uh, a difficult idea, but a wonderful idea, that we celebrate the baby who's born in a manger, but every baby that's born, I mean, and we're getting lots of babies in this church, when the baby is born, the baby did exist before it was born, but only for nine months in the mother's womb. Before that, the baby did not exist. I'm sorry, but if you believe in reincarnation, you're wrong. You haven't come from another life. You weren't a prince of Egypt or whatever else it was 2,000 years ago. You came into existence in your mother's womb. You were knit together, says the psalmist, in your mother's womb. But Jesus is different. He's different in this sense, that he existed as God from all eternity. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Jesus is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, the only uncreated thing in the world, the only uncreated thing in the universe, is God. And Jesus is part of that trinity, that triune God. He is before all things, Colossians 1.17, Paul says. He is before all things, and in him all things hold together. Now, there are numerous examples of Jesus claiming to be God. Um, The Jews were strict monotheists, as are Um, Muslims, and as actually are Christians, that is, believe in one God. But when Jesus claimed to be God, that's why he was crucified. John 5.18, for this reason the Jews tried all the harder to kill him. Not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. Now, I don't have time to go into this, and it's something that we could spend a lot of time considering. But Jesus in glory before he came to earth. It's just an amazing idea, and it's an amazing um, concept. You know how you get that program, what's it, Secret Millionaire, where somebody comes and, you know, they're used to living in a mansion, and they come and pretend to be poor and help people in their secret, uh, allegedly. It's a little bit like that, except a million times greater. We cannot conceive what Christ came from. And I'm I'm not really sure that we can really grasp what he came to either. But the point of Philippians 2 is saying Jesus gave up on this. He being in very nature God did not consider equality with God something to be grasped. And that's set in contrast to human beings who are, we are constantly claiming our rights. We are constantly claiming our status. We are constantly claiming our recognition. 
Jesus doesn't. Jesus, the, maybe a root version of the word, is described in this way. What someone already has but chooses not to exploit or take advantage of. You know, there's one of the uh, apocryphal gospels. There's lots of um, stuff that people like Dan Brown pick up on, which is hilarious, really, because it shows an incredible amount of ignorance. Because the church has been dealing with this kind of stuff. But there were gospels. As soon as the gospels came out, of course, when you get truth, you get falsehood, you get imitations. And there were people who tried to imitate. And there was a gospel called the Gospel of Thomas. And it had Jesus. My favorite part of that one is it has Jesus as a wee boy exploiting his godness by creating uh, a clay pigeon and saying, go on, fly, clapping his hands and making the clay pigeon come to life and fly away. So it's a kind of Superman version of God, and people have this idea that that's what we mean when we say Jesus was God. No, what we're saying is that he was God, that he is God, but that he didn't hold on to that. He gave it up. Now, what does that mean? Verse 7, he became man. Jesus was God, he became man. He made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. Just an incidental, but um, maybe an important one. The word that's used, the Greek language uses different words for men. The word that's used for man here is not the word that you would use for a male. If you wanted to specifically identify a male, there are parts in the New Testament where a male is meant. But man that's used, the word that's used here for man, anthropos, is a word that is used for all human beings. You would say, in this instance, you would say a woman was a man as well. And it's intriguing that it's describing Jesus. Now, Jesus was male, but that's not the important issue. The the important issue is that he became human. And the incarnation is, if you like, non-gender specific in that way. In in other words, Christ became human as much for uh, a woman as for a man. He was made in human likeness. Now, likeness doesn't mean Uh, it was kind of like fake. What it's saying is he actually did take human flesh. He actually did become a baby. And it's difficult for people to grasp this, and it's difficult for Christians to grasp it, because we worship Jesus, we worship him as God, and it's really, really, people get really, almost quite offended by this. It's really hard to think of Jesus as a baby who needed his nappies changed. You know, it's quite extraordinary when you think about it. To think of, of Christ being helpless. You know, not surrounded by an aura all the time. Not surrounded by angels protecting him. Not being on a throne. But being breastfed. Needing cleaned. Crying. Being cut. Being hurt. Teething. You ever think of Jesus teething? It doesn't fit. The kind of, we, even when we do our nativity things, we always have this kind of, you have these cars where the, the, the manger is almost elevated. As though everyone would be aware. The point about it is that when the shepherds went to see Jesus, he was an ordinary baby. What happened to them was extraordinary, but he was an ordinary baby. When Mary, the fascinating thing of the passage we read in Luke says that Mary basically kept quiet and treasured all these things in her heart. What is going on here? This is my flesh. This is my baby. This is an extraordinary thing that is happening. Lo, within a manger lies he who built 
the starry skies. The Christian gospel is saying that the one who created the whole universe became a baby. And if you, if you go, ah, yeah, right, meaning, yes, I believe that, but it doesn't have any impact on me, then you've, if you haven't got the wow factor for that, I, I really question whether you've got it. I suspect you probably do have the Santa Claus version of Christianity, where it's just all makey-makey-up stuff in your head. You go, yeah, I believe that. But if you really believe it, if you really grasp it, it really is quite extraordinary. He emptied himself. He emptied himself. He humbled himself, it says. Now, some say that means he ceased being God, or that he emptied himself of God-like qualities such as being all-powerful and so on. But, and 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 I apologize for the heavy theology here, but isn't it interesting, by the way, how we take all the good bits of the Bible and we turn them into kids' stories, and then we take away the sense of wonder of it. You know, like Noah's Ark. Noah's Ark. How do we turn Noah's Ark into a nice kid's story? It's about the worst story in the whole Bible. It really is. And yet we've, we, we just do that. And I think we're trying to make it, to explain it to children. But, but there's a danger that you grow up as an adult and you stick with the children's version in your head. And it does become like a fairy story. And in this sense, when we're looking at this, it really is quite incredibly deep. What Paul is teaching here is not that he emptied himself in the sense of he was no longer God. He stopped being God. He was no longer part of the Trinity. That's not what's said. He made himself of no reputation. Made himself nothing. He sacrificed and was prepared to be humiliated. He poured out himself. Therefore, Isaiah 53 verse 12, I will give him a portion among the great and he will divide the spoils with the strong because he poured out his life unto death and was numbered with the transgressors for he bore the sin of many many, and made intercession for the transgressors. He humbled himself. As God, Christ owned everything. Psalmist says the cattle on a thousand hills are his. You read the story of Jesus as man, he owned nothing, not a thing. He had no pillow on which to lay his head. He had to borrow a boat. He had to borrow a pulpit. He had to borrow a donkey for transport, and he even had to borrow a tomb to be buried in. He was a servant, a doulos, someone devoted to another to the disregard of one's own interest. So the story of the incarnation is not just that God came in human, vor- in human form as a, as a baby, but why he came. He came to serve. The Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve. So there's a, it's extraordinary enough that the, God becomes a child, it's even more amazing that he becomes a child in order to serve us. I think that um, there's room in here as well for expansion on this idea that this is the story of Adam in reverse. Adam in pride, man in pride sought to become God. Christ in humility becomes human. Now it goes further. And that's why Paul doesn't stop. He doesn't say this just happened. He humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. Christ lived a life of utter and complete obedience to God. That is the characteristic that is stressed more than anything in the New Testament. 
give you one example, Hebrews chapter 5, verse 7. During the days of Jesus' life on earth, he offered up prayers and petitions with loud cries and tears to the one who could save him from death. Jesus prayed with tears. Isn't that extraordinary? And he was heard because of his reverent submission. Although he was a son, he learned obedience from what he suffered. And once made perfect, he became the source of eternal salvation for all who obey him. His obedience led to his death, a death of unimaginable pain and shame. Deuteronomy 21:23. you must not leave his body on the tree overnight. Be sure to bury him that same day because anyone who's hung on a tree is under God's curse. Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us. For it is written, cursed is everyone who's hung on a tree. This is so incredibly offensive to people. Um, the monthly record you see at the back there, I really liked what Al did with it because Al said, I don't really like, Al's my designer, and he said, I don't really like Christmas very much. Good free Presbyterian background. He says, I don't really like Christmas very much. And I said, I want a bright cover, a Christmas cover. And we talked about it. He says, I want to speak of Easter. I said, exactly. You give me a bright Christmas cover that speaks of Easter, and I'll owe you one. Well, you look at the cover, and it's a crown of, it's um, Christmas lights in the shape of a crown of thorns. It's genius. That's exactly what this baby was, the baby was born to die. And that is so offensive for so many people. Right from... Early times, Cicero said this, Far be the very name of the cross, not only from the body, but even from the thought, the eyes, the ears of Roman citizens. To be crucified in Roman culture, to be crucified in Greek culture, was just the absolute pits. And it is in our culture as well. There's a book um, called The Terrorists by a man called John Updike. And uh, I read this in it. To worship a God known to have died, the very idea affects Ahmed like an elusive stench, a stoppage in the plumbing, a dead rodent in the walls. To worship a God known to have died, the very idea is a stench. That grasps just how offensive the, the cross is. The, the idea that God would send his son as a baby, the idea that that baby was born to die, and that baby was born to die so that I could be set free or so that you and I could be forgiven is so deeply offensive to people. I read an interview with a major British Christian leader and which is talking about his view of the atonement, and he admitted, he's had a, he has a view of the atonement in which he says that the idea that Jesus was crucified for our sins and you know, God was punishing was, was, is just a terrible idea. And he admits in that, he says, we are talking about a different God. And indeed we are. Because I am talking, what the Bible is talking about, is a God who loves us so much, he gives his son to die for us. Not as an example, but as an atonement. And that's why, when you go back to Philippians 2, verses 9 to 11, Jesus is to be worshipped. He's to be worshipped because of what he did. That's why the cross is so wonderful. That's why if you have the manger without the cross, you haven't got it. All you've got is a cute fairy story about a baby being born in a manger with donkeys around saying, isn't this wonderful? All you've got is churches that are being filled today where guys are standing up and they're saying, Christmas is about the need to help the poor. Or Christmas is about how we've got so much and they've got so little. No, it isn't. 
That's part of what it's about. But if you say that's what it's about, there's no point even going to church. Because you do that. I hope that that's something that people would see anyway. Christmas is about the greatest need that all of us have as human beings, whether rich or poor, male or female. It's about how we come to know God. He went willingly. Gordon Fee says this, Paul believed that in Jesus Christ, the true nature of the living God had been revealed ultimately and finally. God is not a grasping, self-centered being. Listen to this, please, because the devil always tells us, oh, if you believe in that God, he must be horrible. God is not a grasping, self-centered being, but is most truly known through the one who, himself in the form of God and thus equal with God, poured out himself in sacrificial love by taking the lowest place, the role of a slave, whose love for his human creatures found its consummate expression in his death on a cross. The God we worship is a God who loves us so much that he gives himself for us. Nobody, nobody, no matter how close they are to you, nobody loves you with that depth and with that passion and with that commitment. And that's why Paul says, we've got to reflect this. See, remember again, he's talking in this context of some Christians squabbling about what's going on in the church. And he's saying, think about what Jesus did. Think about who Jesus is. He has given the name that is above every name. The name reflects the person, the power, the worth, the dignity of the person. The name of Jesus. He's Christ. He is the glorious one. That's why it's so horrible, isn't it? When people use Jesus as a swear word, what are you doing with his name? You're using it like dirt. You're taking the most precious name and using it. And it's called blasphemy. You're spitting on it. When people do that, it's just absolutely horrendous. It's like, um, you know, when people swear, to be honest, maybe, maybe it's just I've lived here too long. But I just don't get offended anymore. It's just, you know, it's an inability to use language. Or maybe it's expressing anger or a whole bunch of different things. It's not a big issue. But but it's a big, big, big issue when people take the name of Jesus and use it as a swear word. Because we know who Jesus is. We know what, what Jesus has done for us. He is the glorious one. I heard every creature, Revelation 5.13 in heaven and on earth and under the earth and on the sea and all that is in them, singing to him who sits on the throne and to the Lamb be praise and honor and glory and power forever and ever. There's this extraordinary thing that happens. Jesus comes from heaven. He comes down to earth. He comes into poverty. He comes to be born in a manger. He lives in a situation where his earthly father dies when he's still very young. He works as a carpenter till he's about 30. At 30 years old, he's baptized, he begins his ministry, he teaches, he works miracles, he gathers the 12 disciples, tries to train them over a period of three years with varying degrees of success. He's one of the world's worst preachers because he gathers crowds and then scares them away by what he says. He fails as a religious leader because he goes into the capital of his religion, Jerusalem, and ends up being killed by his fellow leaders. He's crucified. But all that is for a purpose, because God in Christ was reconciling the world to himself. He's raised from the dead. He spends some time with his disciples before giving the Holy Spirit and himself ascending into heaven, where he will come 
Again, when the curtain on everything finally closes, at least in this area. And all of that in Philippians is just to simply say, that baby we worship, he is more glorified now. You know, it seems strange that, how can you have, you have perfection in heaven? What is in heaven? Jesus is in heaven and he's there with hands with holes in them. You'd think, well, how, surely if perfect, the, the holes, that would all be healed. And all, no, no, no. It's because the lamb that was slain, we worship the lamb that was slain. Okay, what does all this mean? To become a Christian is to confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. If you confess with your mouth, Jesus is Lord, and believe in your heart, God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. To become a Christian is to acknowledge and to accept and to worship who Jesus is. I, I hope, I don't want to give the impression, if you're not a Christian, I don't want to give the impression that I've got this box or book or checklist that I can say I understand this, 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 it's all sussed. No. I, there's, there's so much I don't understand, there's so much I don't grasp. But I do know whom I have believed. I do know who Jesus Christ is. And unhesitatingly, I would say Jesus Christ is Lord. There's no one else that's Lord, but Jesus Christ is Lord. And there will come a day, I'm asking you as a non-Christian to investigate that and to come to acknowledge and to see that for yourself before you have to. Because there comes a day, as it says in Philippians, every knee at the name of Jesus, every knee shall bow in heaven and on earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord. All will submit, all will confess, but not all will be saved. Today is the day of salvation. Today, if we confess, we are saved. To confess Jesus as Lord and confess our need of him. I think, um, let me say, let me finish this by just saying to those of us who are Christians. Please remind yourself of this. We exist on this earth to serve him. It is a privilege to serve him. It is an honor to serve him. Isn't it true that at Christmas, the worst kind of child and the worst kind of adult is the one who's thinking, what do I get for myself? What do I get for myself? Is it not the case that there, you, it's so much better for you as well as for everyone else, where we do genuinely think about what we can give. And if you are a Christian, just think of the words of the carol. You know, what can I give him? What can I give him? Give him my heart. Give him my desires. Give him the things that I long for. Give him all that I'm, that I'm looking for. I... I actually love Christmas. I, I, I used to hate it. I used to absolutely hate it. And there are aspects of it I still hate. But what I love about it more than anything else, and freeing your mind, and it's very liberating if you can, of the sort of crash commercialism. Enjoy the food. Enjoy the gifts. Enjoy the music. Enjoy everything about it. But enjoy it because you see the one who's at the absolute center of it. I think... Um, Last Sunday evening we sang Joy to the World. 
That song's been going round in my head all week. In fact, when I was delivering Christmas cards, I was walking along going, um, joy to the world, without an earphones in as well. It's unusual to hear someone singing without earphones, I think, in our culture. And I realized as I was going up the stairway, um, this must sound nuts to people. You know, a singing postie. It's kind of make a record or, you know, but it, it must sound crazy. But it, it, it's, it's what our world needs. It's what our city needs. It's what our families need. It's what we need to realize that Christ came into the world and we can humbly serve him. Whoever humbles himself like this child is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. Humble yourselves, therefore, under God's mighty hand that he may lift you up in due time. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, for your word. Thank you for Jesus coming into the world. Thank you that you humbled and emptied yourself, made yourself of no reputation. Thank you that this means that we can be freed and forgiven and come to know you and serve you and worship you and be truly human. May that be the case for each one of us. And Lord, may your spirit be poured out upon us, upon this church, other churches in the city, the whole city, this country, this Christmas, that people would look to the Savior of the world, the greatest news. We ask it in your name. Amen.